Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing good. How about yourself, Sarah? Doing pretty good. It's busy trying to get everything ready uh, so I can take just under two weeks off for the holidays. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's all coming together. Well, it'll be Christmas soon. Mm-hmm. What are we watching today? Oh, uh, well, today we are watching... Supernatural. I know I've already made this joke, but which season? No, the movie, Sarah. Oh, instead of like the Arrested Development's seven seasons and a movie, they did the 30 seasons and a movie? No, it's, it's, um, we're doing every movie in chronological order, so this would be like 70. Oh, this is a prequel. Okay. Yeah, how about we just (laughs) stick with that? It's a prequel. It's a Supernatural prequel. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that, that'll be easier. Yeah, this film's called Supernatural. It's from 1933, uh, and it is, it is not related to the TV show. It's from our good friends, the Halperin brothers, mm-hmm. who uh, produced and directed White Zombie. Right. Yeah. It was kind of like an indie movie mm-hmm. using other people's sets. Yes. Yeah. So after the success of White Zombie, the Halperin brothers, that's producer Edward Halperin and director Victor Halperin, they won a contract at Paramount Pictures to produce a follow-up horror film, uh, which we mentioned at the end of our White Zombie episode, I believe. Mm-hmm. So the Halperins didn't actually like the horror genre. <laughs> um, they had chosen it for White Zombie due to financial considerations. Uh, if you recall that episode, their primary goal with that movie was to make a film hearkening back to the style of the silent era. They chose a horror movie because they felt that in the current sort of economic climate of Hollywood, that would be a popular choice that would help them get funding for the movie more easily. So it wasn't even an artistic decision of, like, silent movies and their relationship to horror. It's like, no, let's let's... Use that to try to cash in. Yeah, because when White Zombie came out, it was 1932, and we were right smack dab at the height of the craze, right? And the fact they were able to get Bella Lugosi certainly sweetened the deal. Yes, exactly. But here they were, now having to make another horror film for Paramount uh, due to White Zombie's success. Now, having worked on indie movies and Poverty Row pictures, uh, their whole careers... The Halperins weren't about to pass up a contract from a major studio like Paramount. And so regardless of their own creative feelings, another horror movie they would make. (laughs) Which is interesting because we've been talking about, in the last few episodes, this pushback against horror. So the timeline of this must be kind of interesting. Yeah, well, they would have gotten this contract from Paramount right after... White Zombie was a big financial success. So, you know, this movie was already in the pipelines, as it were, Mm. um, ever since White Zombie came out. This has been what the Halperins have been doing, and now it's being released at this point. They reunited most of the crew from White Zombie for this film. Writer Garnet Weston, for example, as well as cinematographer Arthur Martinelli Mm -hmm. uh, returning. They had wanted... Madge Bellamy to return as the film's female lead. No! Uh, But Paramount vetoed putting the silent film star in the picture, insisting on modern stars for the lead roles. Yes! Uh, So, Paramount got their way and had Carol Lombard and Randolph Scott in the leads. Have we heard of Carol before? No. Okay, the name just sounds very familiar. She's famous. She's a famous movie star. Oh, okay. Uh, And then, of course, Randolph Scott was in Murders in the Zoo last week. As who? He was the uh, herpetologist who saves the day at the end. Oh, the western star. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The guy who was in a relationship with Cary Grant. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, okay. With the leads sort of decided for them by the studio, the Halperins managed to get work for silent stars like Vivian Osborne, H.B. Warner 
and William Farnham in supporting parts in the movie. Uh, so they basically took their studio-mandated leads and then filled the rest of the cast with their silent film favorites. So uh, Randolph Scott, uh, we of course already know. We just saw him in Murders in the Zoo. This was his very next film. Uh, for more on him, you can check out our Murders in the Zoo episode. Carol Lombard is the other big name in this movie, and she, she is fairly famous. Uh, she was born Jane Alice Peters in 1908 to wealthy parents. As a young girl, she was heavily involved in sports and ended up catching the eye of a director looking for a young tomboy for one of his movies, uh, which led to her first film role in A Perfect Crime in 1921. This led to screen tests with the Vitagraph Film Company, which changed her first name to Carol, and then when she signed a contract with Fox in 1924, her last name was changed to Lombard. Any particular reasons given for the name changes? Uh, that her f a real first name of Jane was boring <laughs> and too plain, uh, and same with her last name of Peters. So I think both parts of the name, like Carol Lombard, I think they were both kind of just pulled out of a hat for <laughs> sounding more sophisticated. Okay. She had her first lead role in a film in 1925, but after an automobile accident, Lombard obtained a facial scar and would go a year without work because of it. Uh, eventually, she would learn how to use makeup and careful lighting to hide the scar. In 1927, Max Sennett began using her in slapstick comedy shorts, and her flair for comedy led to her career improving, with feature film appearances through 1928 and 1929. Uh, these successes led to Paramount signing her to a contract in 1930, starring in a string of popular comedies from that point on that increased the buzz around her stardom. Mm -hmm. In 1931, she would marry William Powell, who was Paramount's top male star at the time, but by 1933, they would divorce. The 16-year age difference between them, as well as their polar opposite personalities being the key factors in that divorce. You think maybe that was just a publicity kind of marriage? It's possible. They certainly played it up as being true love when they got married, and then, like, they got divorced two years later because uh, William Powell was, you know, um, a middle-aged man who was very sophisticated and proper, and Carol Lombard was this young... Uh, early 20s woman who was mostly well known for, if not her sense of humor, her foul mouth, basically. <laughs> Lombard resented being cast in Supernatural. She felt that her forte was comedy and that she was ill-suited to being in a horror film. Okay, that's interesting because, um, I mean, besides more than just in Murders in the Zoo, but in past films we've seen, there's an interesting, like, back and forth between horror and comedy. Yeah, absolutely. They're genres that have, I think, a lot in common, and it really just comes down to, you know, what the emphasis is that can push something over the line from being funny to horrifying and back again, right? Yeah. The Halperins resented having Lombard forced upon them by the studio over their preferred choice of Madge Bellamy. So the mutual dislike between this leading lady and her director led to arguments and fights on set during the filming of the picture. Oh, no. uh, it was all very tense, I guess. Lombard's career would reach its major turning point after this movie in 1934 when she was cast in Howard Hawks' screwball comedy 20th Century. Uh, after that point, she was sort of hailed as the queen of screwball comedies, and Lombard would star in a huge string of them, become a really big name. Uh, she would marry Clark Gable in 1939, oh. who was kind of the king of Hollywood. Yeah, everyone's heard of Clark Gable. Mm -hmm. Her final film would be the 1942 comedy classic To Be or Not To Be, uh, as she would die at age 33 in an airplane crash. Oh. And she was returning from, I think, like a war bonds tour and crashed in, I think, in the mountains in Nevada. So Supernatural, the movie, <laughs> premiered 
Uh, Supernatural, colon, the movie. I mean, it's not called that, but <laughs> I feel like Supernatural, colon, the movie would actually be the movie based on the TV show. <laughs> so Supernatural would premiere on April 21st, 1933. While not a box office flop by any means, it nevertheless failed to match the popularity of White Zombie and was considered a disappointment by Paramount. It'll be interesting to see why it did not do well, because Island of Lost Souls didn't do well because it is very much a horror movie. This might just not do well because it's never good if you have a leading actor and your director slash and producer not having a good time. Mm-hmm, yeah. Then, as now, critical response to this film was mixed, mm. with kind of people's opinions being all over the map. When they do praise this movie, the praise largely actually tends to go to Carol Lombard's performance as being surprisingly good for an actress who never appeared in horror before or since and didn't really want to be in this movie. The other elements of this film, the writing, the, the, the other actors, whatever, there seems to be no real critical consensus. It can go one way or another, depending on who uh, is looking at this movie. Okay, so let's see what we have to say with looking at this movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How can others look at this movie, Ben? Well, uh, Supernatural is available on DVD from Universal Home Video's Vault series, but there are currently no online streaming options. So you kind of have to order this DVD if you want to watch this movie. Uh, well, hop to it, friends, and uh, you have until the end of the intermission to get... Your mailed copy of <laughs> Supernatural from 1933. Yeah, so you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and then we will be right back with the movie. See you on the other side. We kind of switched there. Yeah. <laughs> back everyone to <laughs> scream scene we just finished watching supernatural <laughs> what a fucking weird movie sarah it started out so cool with some really badass montagey whatever's on screens and fades and whatever and just went downhill from there i don't know if downhill is the right plateaued word from there to describe this movie's bananas yes and it's, it's like a bit of a roller coaster to it in terms of just what it's about and what is happening. Yeah, I guess you can't really say it meanders because it all ties in. Sure, it's just a movie that decides to be about different things from one moment to the next. And seems like they were constantly coming up with like new plot ideas as they went. I feel like this is the first movie that we've had for the list, that really seems to hit that classic kind of um, so-bad-it's-good yeah. feel to it. I think that there have been some movies that, like, came close to that. But this definitely, even just, like, the opening overture, mm. I guess, felt like Vampira just introduced this movie. Yeah, this feels a little Ed Wood-esque, just, like, with a budget... And slightly better writing and better acting. Yeah. But, like, I think before now we've had movies that were bad and we've had movies that were good and we've had movies that were mediocre. But, like, this is the first time watching a movie where the stuff that makes this movie bad is what makes it fun to watch. And that's what the whole point of So Bad It's Good is, right? Yeah, is where, yeah. where the stuff that's bad is what you're actually enjoying about watching the movie. I mean... The, the plot's, like, utterly bananas, but once you've kind of gotten on board with that <laughs> plot, there are some delightfully wild sights to see in this movie. Definitely. Speaking of plot, would you like to share it with us? Okay. Ruth Rogan is an artist who has killed three of her lovers by strangling them because she hates men. 
During an orgy. Right. Killed them during an orgy. Yes. Can't forget that part. With her bare hands. <laughs> so she's been declared sane by the courts and responsible for her actions. So she's going to be executed for her crimes. And she's, like, not remorseful at all. She's, like, all cackling and would do it again if given the chance and that sort of thing. So that part's great. So there's this psychologist named Dr. Houston who goes to see the warden of the prison, not to convince the warden that Ruth is insane and therefore not responsible because she's already been proven sane in the courts, but to say that, okay, so you know how there's, like, copycat killers <laughs> after a serial killer? Yeah. Or, like, during a serial killer sprees? Yeah. So Dr. Houston has a theory that copycat killers are caused when the spirit of the original serial killer leaves the body and possesses other people to commit more murders. And the warden <laughs> is like, well, I mean, we all know you have psychic powers, Dr. Houston, but still, that's a bit of a wild theory, don't you think? And Sarah and I are sitting here like, wait, what? You can't just side drop, oh, by the way, you have psychic powers. Also, the fact that Dr. Houston has psychic powers never comes back at all into being a significant plot element of the movie in any way. I wonder if it's a way to say you have a psychology degree. No, that's, that's like saying that <laughs> if I'm an electrical engineer, I can shoot force lightning out of my fingertips like the goddamn emperor. Not the same thing. <laughs> so, anyways, Dr. Houston feels that Ruth Rogan is a risk for possessing people after she dies. So he wants her body given to him by the state after her death so he can perform an experiment on her with ultraviolet rays to prevent her ghost from leaving her body after she dies. Which, like, that's wild! Yeah. That's... Okay. Sure. Meanwhile, John Courtney is dead. Has nothing to do with the Ruth Rogan plot. Don't worry about it. He's rich, or at least he was. And, uh, you know, his um, estate is being handled by this guy named Hammond, who's an old friend of the family. And he is survived by his sister. Twin. Twin sister, Roma Courtney, uh, who has a boyfriend named Grant? It was Grant, right? Yeah. He's Randolph Scott. Roma Courtney is Carol Lombard. And uh, they're all sad, because John is dead. Their other family friend happens to be Dr. Houston, so everyone's kind of connected through that way. Late one night, somebody breaks into the funeral home where John Courtney's body is, and takes a plaster mold of his face to make a death mask out of. This somebody is Paul Bavian? Something like that. Right. So Paul is a spiritualist, <laughs> and he lives on a Victorian London backlot. <laughs> a backlot previously seen in the number one film on the list, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So he's a spiritualist. He's a, a medium. You know, if it was 2017, he'd have his own TV show on TBS Superstation. And um, <laughs> he's got this landlady who's an alcoholic, and she's kind of comic relief. Because of that? I guess. Anyways, so he's made a death mask of John Courtney because his whole thing is he's going to suggest that Roma have like a seance to try and talk with John after his death and try to basically get some money out of Roma this way because he's a, he's a hack and a, and a fraud. Uh, his whole apartment's like rigged up with like wires and tricks to like do things during the seance and so on. But Paul is also connected to Ruth Rogan. Remember that part of the plot? Yeah. <laughs> so I guess he and her were lovers. And rather than being killed like all her other lovers, he was the one who turned her into the police. But it's it was Not never clear. very clear to me what his role in everything is. Because it sounded like he talked her into 
murdering the people too in some sort of way, or like partners in the crime. Or yeah, the, the backstory is very unclear here. Yeah. Either way, uh, Ruth, before her death, wanted Paul to come see her, and he was like, no. Uh, so he's connected to Ruth that way. So he contacts Roma and is like, hey, your brother John's been talking to me from beyond the grave. <laughs> uh, and he wants to talk with you. And all of Roma's friends and family are like, hey, this is some piece of shit trying to get money out of you. Don't go. She's like, cool, Grant, come with me. We're going. Paul's landlady has kind of figured out what Paul's game is. And she kind of tries to blackmail him. With like, hey, I'll tell them all that you're a fraud, and also you're connected to Ruth Rogan, the famous serial killer who's dead now, and all this kind of stuff. Paul's got this, um, like, Borgia ring, basically. <laughs> uh, you to know, harken back to a previous Jekyll and Hyde movie. Yeah, exactly. He's got the ring with the poison in it, uh, where he can shake your hand, and then it'll scratch you, and you'll be poisoned. So he does that to his landlady, and she dies mm -hmm. quite horribly. So Paul's not just, like, a, a swindler and a con man. He's, like, a psychopath. So anyways, Roma and Grant show up, and Paul puts on his show, and it's quite an elaborate production. The reason he took the death mask of John was so that he could make it look like, through some smoke and mirror tricks, like uh, John's appearance is sort of manifesting in the room. Mm -hmm. And the ghost of John Courtney uh, tells Roma that Hammond, the executor of their estate, killed him for the money, and that she's in danger. You know, Roma's pretty upset after this seance. Grant doesn't believe a word of it and just thinks that Paul is a swindler, which he is, uh, but she's very upset. So they leave to go see Dr. Houston. They arrive just as Dr. Houston is performing his ultraviolet ray experiments on the dead body of Ruth Rogan. Roma and Grant show up just in time to see Ruth's body, like, seem to come alive because Houston is, like, pumping some electricity into it. It's just a galvanic response, you know. <laughs> He's trying to talk to Roma, who's really upset, and get her to calm down. And then, like, a bunch of weird stuff happens where, like, the windows open by themselves and Ruth's body kind of just falls out of the chair that it's in and knocks over the screen. And all of a sudden... Roma, like, is acting like she's being choked by someone, and they sort of get her out of the room, and there are, like, marks on her throat, as if she, someone was trying to choke her. Dr. Houston comes up with this plan to have a seance at Roma's house, and he'll be there, as well as Grant and Mr. Hammond, to kind of be like, is this guy a hack, and if so, now he's on our turf and we'll beat him up or whatever. We'll, we'll yeah, catch him in the act, yeah, not actually beat him up. And he won't be, like, I think the assumption is that, like, if he had his apartment rigged to do all this stuff, he won't be able to rig, like, someone else's place. Yeah. Despite these precautions, Paul manages, through some trickery, to get the message he wants across again. That Hammond killed John for the money, and that Roma's in danger, and this kind of thing. And it's during this second seance that, again, there's some weird, creepy stuff happening uh, on top of the fake creepy stuff that Paul's <laughs> doing. At the end of the seance, Paul manages to uh, get Hammond with the poisoned ring, uh, and Hammond dies from that. Uh, and then Roma faints uh, after the seance, and it's when she's fainted that the spirit of Ruth possesses her. So when she wakes up, all of a sudden Carol Lombard is playing a completely different character. And she does it well. Yes, it's very good. Grant and Dr. Houston are sort of distracted by the death of Hammond, and while they're distracted, uh, Ruth, possessing Roma, convinces Paul, like, hey, let's get out of here and head somewhere else. And he's like, yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, so she takes him to Ruth Rogan's apartment. You know, she knows which key it is and all this kind of stuff and gets them in there. And Paul's like, oh, how did you know about this place? And she's like, oh, Ruth was a friend of mine. Ruth's apartment has all these um, sort of sculptures and statues and also like a full-scale painting of herself in it. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> then she starts just kind of being low-key or maybe even high-key creepy around Paul, trying maybe to kill him, but they're interrupted when Ruth's landlord shows up and is like, hey, who are you people? You should not be here. Get the fuck out of here. So they leave and instead go to Roma's yacht 
which looks very large. It's like a luxury liner. But they go to Roma's yacht, and finally alone there, Ruth, possessing Roma, gets Paul drunk and uh, makes her move to try and kill him. Meanwhile, Grant and Dr. Houston have uh, sort of tracked them as far as Ruth's apartment, learned from the landlord that they were there, but they have no clue where they went from here. Dr. Houston faints because he then realizes that Ruth has fully possessed Roma. Right. There's no other reason why they would have come to Ruth's Ruth's apartment. apartment. Right, so the realization, the full horror of what has happened, strikes Houston and he faints. And Grant's just like, oh man, what am I going to do? And that's when, like, some creepy, weird music and and the wind and stuff comes in and, like, knocks over this little, like, boat model that the landlord was making. And the floating head of John Courtney. So we, the audience, know that it is John's ghost speaking from the grave, telling Grant, hey, go to the yacht. She's in trouble. Yeah, I don't think Grant, like, sees the head, but it's it's just for the audience. But, like, yeah, after all the fake appearances of John's ghost uh, in the seances, turns out, yes, that is, John's ghost has been trying to get in touch with you this whole time. And so Grant's like, aha, the yacht, while Ruth has Roma's hands around Paul's throat. She has a really great line about, um, I'm going to kill you in this body you like so much. Yeah, it's Or something great. like that. Yeah. Grant comes in and sort of interrupts things, allowing Paul to escape. And rather than use Roma's body to run after Paul, Ruth's spirit just leaves her body and floats outside and ends up basically causing Paul to get caught up in the ship's ropes and hang himself over the side. You hear Ruth's maniacal laughter kind of chasing him and causing him to fall and everything. Yeah. So with Paul dead, uh, Ruth's spirit is presumably satisfied, because that's the last we see of it, Roma and Grant make out on the yacht. Well, because Roma doesn't know what's happened, right? Right, yeah, she just wakes up. Grant doesn't want to be like, yeah, Hammond's dead. Yeah, she just wakes up and is like, oh, hey, where am I? Where is everyone? And Grant's just like, yeah, it's fine. Let's just make out. And then uh, the final image of the movie is, like, the ghost of John Courtney, like, opening up a Vanity Fair magazine to an ad about honeymoons so that the audience can know that uh, the two, Grant and Roma, get married. Yeah, and have a happy ending. It's a weird movie, Sarah. It is. Um, It's got a lot going on, and... Carol Lombard is really great here, but she's kind of very nearly the only good thing here. Yeah, I mean, Vivian Osborne's pretty rad for, like, her one scene as Ruth, and I think the two of them do a good job of playing the role similarly enough that you buy that it's the same personality between the two of them. For sure. Randolph Scott's just kind of Randolph Scott. He's the David Manners in this movie. What I did find was, like, weird is this film opens with, like, Several quotes. Yes. So one is from Confucius, one is from the Prophet Muhammad, and then the third is from the Book of Matthew, all being like, yo, ghosts are real. Yeah, right. And it's like, if you have to open your movie to, like, legitimize the premise of your movie, maybe you should have done something else. Like, Yeah, it's such a weird, like... I feel like that was the other reason behind giving Dr. Houston psychic powers that he never uses, is so that, like, (laughs) if a learned scientist has psychic powers, that somehow legitimizes all of this, like, dead people's ghosts can possess other people stuff or something. And it's such a weird thing to kind of tiptoe around, too. They never say the word ghost. Right. It's always the personality of a comes something. They do say possession. Mm Mm-hmm keeping her soul in her body or mm-hmm. something. They never say ghost, and it, it's just strange to me. Yeah, that might be like, I don't know what the religious background of uh, Garnet Weston, the writer, or uh, the Halperins even is, because that might be like a Catholic thing. Because I know yeah. that like Catholics aren't really okay with the idea of ghosts that aren't the Holy Spirit. But like... But then don't make a movie about ghosts possessing people. Yeah, it's... it's it. <sighs> Watching this movie, it sort of feels less like a movie, you know, written by people who have already made a horror movie, as it is 
a movie being made by someone guessing at what a horror movie is. That's a really good point. Like, yeah. it, it feels like, you know, if you'd never really seen a horror movie and you weren't really familiar with them, but you you knew about them because you were, like, alive and through, like, cultural osmosis, but you don't really know anything about them. So it's like, oh, yeah, there's, like, maybe some ghosts and some murderers and possession and stuff. Like, yeah, like someone guessing at what a movie, a horror movie should be. And the only way that you would be able to tell that the director had previous experience with a horror movie is they do that eye light thing that they perfected in White Zombie, and they do it again here. Mm -hmm. But I guess if it's like, if it's not broken, don't fix it, right? Yeah, Carol Lombard gets the Lugosi eyes. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, like, White Zombie was basically just, you know, we, we, we made fun of it calling it uh, Haitian Dracula. And, like, it definitely was a little bit more than just Haitian Dracula, but that was sort of the basis. Yeah. This movie doesn't really have that same basis, so it just kind of feels like they don't know how the story should be structured. There's a lot of feeling of, like, spaghetti getting thrown at the wall. In this movie, you know? Yeah. For me, it's an interesting idea. Poor execution. It's probably the most noticeable use of music we've had in a movie. That is very um, true. At least in a sound movie up to this point. Uh, there's kind of nearly wall-to-wall delightfully melodramatic music uh, from, like, the moment the, s the story starts. We saw that in White Zombie, too. Yeah, White Zombie had quite a bit of music. But they, they definitely figured out how to do it way better here. The second the movie starts with, like, the opening credits of, like, lightning crashes and this, like, really bombastic choir. Yeah, the choir going. sounds like it's a theremin, but it's ladies singing. Yeah, and, like, you just immediately started chuckling because it was such a, like, over-the-top way to start the movie from the jump. Yeah. I think that... There are some moments in this movie that do a good job at being creepy. Mm -hmm. You know, we've already talked about Vivian Osborne and Carol Lombard's performance. We talked about the moment where Ruth, while she's possessing Roma, has her hands around Paul's throat. It's like, I'm going to kill you and stuff. And like, that's a really good moment, I think. It's way too short. Like, it's so brief. This movie spends its whole running time building to that moment. Yeah. And then that moment's over and done with. And then the movie just kind of ends, right? So because it opens with this whole idea that this woman strangled three men, mm -hmm. um, and we, you can kind of tell that they're going to go for ghost possession uh, within like five minutes of the movie, mm -hmm. I was kind of hoping that we'd get some throwbacks to the hands of Orlac. Sure. Like some, something, you know, but we did not. Yeah, it's... It's so weird that they made it strangling because, not to come off in a kind of sexist way or anything, but once we have to actually get to Carol Lombard strangling, uh, Alan Dinehart is the actor who plays Paul, he's so much kind of like physically bigger than her that watching her like, like I think there's a shot where they sort of imply that she's like picked him up and thrown him up against the wall or something. Yeah. It really rides that line between being hard to believe and coming off a little ridiculous. So here's the thing. If we're going to speak in broad strokes about the way different genders commit murder, I guess? Sure. Women do traditionally go with something that's like poison or like whatever, rather than a physically dominating type of murder that men will tend to choose. Sure. But we've seen Paul choose poison. Oh, sure. Sure. That's sort of interesting, actually. So there, yeah, there's kind of like a, a switch there. That's a very good point. Yeah, like the poison in the ring thing, like that's the Lucretia Borgia thing. That is like a, a feminine-coded method of murder, and then she's doing this. Yeah, I hadn't actually thought of that. Mm. That is interesting. Yeah, I don't think that they're saying anything about no. doing it. It's just <laughs> yeah. a thing that happens to be in here. I mean, I feel like that describes a lot of stuff in this movie. <laughs> it has a lot of stuff in it, but it's not really saying anything about it or doing anything with these pieces. Like, I actually kind of liked some of the effects in Paul's various seances. Even though we as the audience know that they're fake, there's some really nicely 
creepy visuals in those scenes. Until he whips out the projector that shows, like, clearly just, <laughs> you know, I cut out John's face out of the newspaper yeah. and put it on this flashlight. Oh. <laughs> you know, for me, the most actually powerful scene in this movie, in terms of what was terrifying, was the scene where his landlady dies. Yeah. Because, like, she gets poisoned, and she doesn't really know what's happened at first, because she's a little brain-addled from her alcoholism, and she's kind of laughing it off like it's a joke, and then she sort of slowly realizes what's actually happened, and she starts kind of gasping for breath, and then she finally, like, keels over and dies, and that's all in, like, one shot. So it's kind of that sealed room thing of, like, forcing you to sit there and watch the person die. Definitely. Yeah, that was that was probably, like, the, the, the height of this movie's power for me. And I think part of the reason why it seemed to have a lot of power is it showed this guy being more than just a charlatan. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's not just a clearly a sinister guy. Yeah, absolutely. Ben? <sighs> yes? What's the fear of this movie? I don't know. Because it's not ghosts. You know why? It's not ghosts. Why? Well, A, Ruth's ghost only kills Paul, someone who totally deserves it. Mm -hmm. And, like, leaves Roma to do it, too. So, like, Roma wasn't even really in danger from Ruth's ghost anyways. And then, like, not only that, but, like, you can't say that ghosts are the fear, because even if Ruth's ghost is bad, everybody else is getting helped by John's ghost. Yeah. So it's not ghosts. Want me to tell you what it is? Is it just, like, shitty dudes? Snitches get stitches. <laughs> <laughs> no, but really, like, don't be an ass to the living or the dead will get ya. Yeah. That's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, it's it certainly falls into the, like, horrific punishment subgenre, right? Yeah. Where, like, the horror comes after shitty people. And I guess there's a level of horror of seeing this, like, innocent person doing things out of their control. But it it's not treated that way, but I think that that would, like, intellectually come into an audience member. For sure. I just feel like this movie could have done a lot better if they'd hewed a little closer to, like, an H.G. Wells rule of only having, like, one crazy thing. <laughs> you know? Because, like, you've got Dr. Houston's psychic powers, you've got ghosts, you've got possession, you've got ultraviolet ray experiments that are super vague and don't really have anything to do with anything like you you could not have that and the story would still work like ruth just needs to die and then her ghost just needs to possess roma like the point of the experiment was to stop her ghost from possessing people so what was the point you've got john courtney's ghost going around saving the day there's so much random stuff in this movie that just kind of overcomplicates it it's, it's almost as if it's a first draft you know, like if I if I was a story editor or a script doctor or whatever that job's called, whatever Carrie Fisher did, <laughs> you know, I would probably get rid of like a whole ton of focus on the Courtney's, a whole ton of focus on like Dr. Houston, whatever the fuck he's yeah, he doing. He has no point in the story. Yeah. And just focus on Paul. Yeah. Paul, make it clear how he fucked over Ruth. Have her die and still be like crazy and sex orgy, whatever, because, like, yeah. I love that. And have him still be a charlatan, but maybe have the creepiness start to creep in when spooky stuff starts happening that he isn't controlling because Ruth is haunting him. Yeah, like, the focus of the story should have been on, you know, Ruth as a ghost haunting Paul and getting her revenge. And instead it's this, like, weird layered thing of, like, her doing that, but also, like, Paul pulling off this scam on the Courtney's and, like... Yeah, there's just too much stuff going on. And the amount of coincidence going on with, like, Ruth's, like, prison psychiatrist is also a family friend of the Courtney's who are the people getting scammed by Paul, who was also Ruth's ex-lover, but none of these people knew each other before this story started. They just all had these weird connections, you know? It's, it's that thing about, like, there's only five people who live in this whole world kind of thing. Yeah, it definitely rivals Dracula with how much coincidence is believable. And then, like, after all this complicated build-up and this bevy of coincidence, to get us to the ending... You know, to get us to what we've been waiting for, which is Ruth's ghost in Roma's body attacking Paul. You have to wonder, like, what the point of any of it all was. Revenge? No, I mean, like, the point of the movie. Oh. Because, like, 
she doesn't even kill Paul while she's possessing Roma. She leaves Roma's body and is still able to kill Paul through manipulating, like, the ropes and stuff to strangle him. So you just have to wonder, like, why did she need to possess Roma in the first place then? Um, because ghosts are poor at planning and take the first opportunity presented to them? Like, I guess, but, like, the way that Dr. Houston explains it at the start of the movie, it's like, oh, yeah, like, you feel like, oh, yeah, the ghost needs to possess someone in order to enact the murders. And then the end of the movie's just like, nah, she didn't need to. And the other thing that's frustrating about that is that, like, if the threat that the audience was supposed to be feeling was that Roma's been possessed... None of the heroes, like Grant, Dr. Houston, whoever, do anything to save the day in that regard. Ruth just stops possessing her because it's no longer convenient. Yeah. Like, this is a movie where, like, you know, if this was Dracula, it would be a movie where, like, Dracula decided to stop targeting Mina because he didn't feel like it anymore. <laughs> and, like, the day is saved because Dracula decided to move to New York at the end or something. Like, it, like what the heck was the point of this story then. Like, it really feels like they were making this up while they were going along, you know? Yeah. This movie is weird. It's occasionally fun. Uh, it flirts with being good at times. But I think at the end of the day, it's just too disjointed to ever coalesce into anything great. There's, there's a lot of good parts here, but there isn't a good whole. Interesting idea. Poor execution. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, let's rank it then, shall we? Definitely. So where are you looking on the list for Supernatural? Well, unfortunately for the Halpin brothers and for Paramount Pictures, uh, it is going on the, for me, the lower half of the list. Okay, how low were you looking? Still close to the middle. It's not wolf blood disappointing to me, <laughs> you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I was looking between 27, mm -hmm. The Magician, mm -hmm. between that and... The Sealed Room at 30. Okay. I was a little bit higher than you. Okay. So uh, my range was number 22, Mystery of the Wax Museum, to number 25, Genuina. Cool. I can see the parallels that you drew with Genuina. Yeah. I felt like this movie did the murderous woman thing better than Genuina did. Because this movie, you know, Ruth is this sort of psychotic serial killer who becomes a ghost and possesses this woman or whatever. And I just feel like ultimately it was a little bit better. She had more character to her than Genuina, who was just kind of like evil because she was from Africa, if I'm not, if I'm remembering that movie correctly. And because she'd been kept in like a terrarium for a while. You know what? In my brain, I think I got... My brain combined Genuina and Alrauna. Because mm. I was about to say, no, she came from a mandrake. That was Alrauna. Yeah. No, Genuina just came from Africa and was kept in a terrarium by an old rich guy. Yeah. And then turned against him and then was evil. So that's why I was thinking above Genuina. was just because I feel like this movie pulled off its murderous woman uh, better. For sure. I was thinking, um, I started around the sealed room, actually, because I, I also saw the parallel between the landlady dying and the suffocation. Yeah. But, yeah, I think you make a really good point with Genuina. So, um, you've moved me up to considering it going above Genuina. Okay. So, um, I'm curious why your ceiling is Mystery of the Wax Museum. I felt like this definitely wasn't as good as Murders in the Room Morgue. That's really where that came from. <laughs> Whereas, like, a lot of these other movies here in the middle of the list, um, the thing that made it hard for me to think about where I was judging Supernatural was what I was saying at the start of our discussion about this being a so-bad-it's-good movie. Mm. In that, like, as I said, I don't think the parts of this movie coalesce into anything coherent. But there's some stuff in this movie that's so weird and out there and audacious that it's really fun in the moment. And I think there was some filmmaking choices, some certain shots and and moments and uh, montages and stuff that were like entertaining enough and exciting enough and new and different enough that I was like, oh, maybe this is better than The Mummy. Because even though The Mummy makes sense and has like a, a clear plot, The Mummy's also super boring. And the thing about Supernatural <laughs> was like, as weird as it got or as bad as it got, I was never bored watching it. I was having a, a fun time watching it the whole way through. So I, I'm not saying that's my argument for it has to go above The Mummy. I'm just saying that's why I ended up in this 
place on the list. Yeah, well, thinking about the vampire bat at 24, Mm -hmm. what I really liked about the vampire bat was this new look, or at least explicit look, at the way that paranoia comes over town in, like, this, like, realistic version of vampirism or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, That movie also doesn't quite make sense. (laughs) So I, I think, like, this is just to say... I feel like this area fits really well with Mm. this movie. You do make a good point about specifically the montages as like a really interesting cinematic technique. Like there's so many overlays of what's going on, but I, I feel like the mummies, maybe it's just because it's a universal picture, but the mummies always kind of taken along with Dracula, Frankenstein. Sure. All of those universal films. Well, it's got basic competency, right? It's got some polish. Yeah. So it feels weird to put this movie that, like, doesn't have that polish and doesn't have, I guess, anything iconic or, like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think, like, the thing about this movie is, like, the weakest thing here is the story. Yeah. Right? The script. Like, I think the filmmaking in it has some moments of being really interesting and audacious, and the way that the music works. I mean, the music's a little melodramatic at 99% of the time, (laughs) but there's some interesting stuff with the diegesis of the music going on here where there's, like, that certain, like, organ-y tune that plays whenever John's ghost comes in and stuff like that. So that really interested me was, was... you know some of the some of the filmmaking stuff in this movie the way the camera moves and the way the editing is done it this movie does have an energy to it uh that the mummy kind of doesn't the mummy's very sedate now that's not necessarily a bad thing the mummy's about hypnosis and ancient people resurrected from the past and like this kind of stuff that maybe lends itself to a more sedate story and it, you could also argue that like the the wildness of this movie is designed to kind of distract you from the story not making a lick of sense. But, I don't know. There's some Mm. interesting stuff to consider in terms of, like, what you value more in a movie, right? Yeah. You know, and then looking at, like, the vampire bat, again, I think thematically the vampire bat's stronger because it has those themes of paranoia, at least in the first half. Uh, And this movie has no themes really at all. But on the other hand, like, I feel like this movie was fun to watch in a way that The Vampire Bat wasn't really for me. Okay. I think you make some really good points. Um, I guess it's it's tough because, like, I think The Mummy, The Vampire Bat, and Supernatural mm-hmm. all have weak fears. Yeah. Which makes it hard to figure out where exactly Supernatural goes. I think you make a really interesting point about the excitement in this movie helping to distract you from its plot failures. <laughs> well, let's think about, you know, we've we've identified that, like, the thematic fear of these movies are all kind of weak here in the middle part of the list. Just speaking as, like, the effectiveness of these movies as horror in terms of, you know, feeling afraid while you were watching it. You know, were there any parts of these three movies where your hair kind of stood on end or you felt your heart quicken a little bit or uh, anything like that that was effective between the three of them. I will say that it was really cool to see a lady get so physical in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think I think Ruth is a cool villain, and I think Carol Lombard does a really cool job of portraying that. I just wish that more of the movie had been devoted to that than some of the other random stuff here. Yeah, and there were no points in any of these three movies where, like, my hair stood up or anything, but to speak to the things that, like, made me, like, sit up and go, like, oh, this might be something interesting. Mm -hmm. With this film, it's um, all of Ruth, Mm -hmm. just, like, Ruth herself. In Vampire Bat, it was Dwight Fry and the treatment of him. And in The Mummy, Karloff's performance. Sure. So I think, I think, you know, we've, there is something to be said about the polish and the competency of The Mummy. Also, The Mummy has that great opening prologue scene. You know, and, and, and Carl Freund's effective visual direction, if not his directing of actors. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, and just the cultural cachet of, of The Mummy. With that taken into account, I'd be willing to put Supernatural below The Mummy above The Vampire Bat. Does that feel 
right, or do you think it should go above the mummy? No, I think um, part of what was making me struggle is considering putting this above the mummy, so I think I'm happy to put it between these two films that we've been kind of discussing. Okay, sure. So entering the list at number 24, which is seven spots down from White Zombie, (laughs) uh, Supernatural, 1933, directed by Victor Halperin. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There are links to the other episodes, so you can hear all that we've said about White Zombie, what we've said about the mummy and the vampire bat to kind of have some context about this ranking discussion. At our website, there is an appeals box. Feel free to submit questions or concerns through there as well. And if Tumblr isn't your bag, you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or just send us a note on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud and iTunes. And we should be widely available through multiple podcatching apps via our RSS feed. We'd love it if you would leave us a comment on either SoundCloud or iTunes, a review of any kind. We would love to hear what you think of the show. Uh, if you have any suggestions or even suggestions for movies, uh, I would love to hear that. Another way that you can help the show is by telling a friend about it. Word of mouth is the best way for podcast audiences to grow. So if you know anyone who'd be into a classic horror movie discussion podcast, certainly let them know about the show. Um, and we know that the whole net neutrality thing is still kind of up in the air. The FCC has ruled that it shall be no more, but I know that there's some stuff going on in Congress that might be able to stop that. But if you do have any interruptions in service, uh, do let us know and we will figure out a way to get you forthcoming episodes. Finally, one last public service announcement. We have a movie that we want to be reviewing in a couple weeks here, La Llorona, the first Mexican horror film. Uh, We do have a way to watch it, but there are no English subtitles. So uh, we'd really like it if we could find a version of this film with English subtitles. And if you know how we can find such a thing, uh, it would be greatly appreciated so that we can watch and review this movie. What are we watching next week? Next week, Sarah, it's the return of Bela Lugosi to the podcast in Columbia Pictures' low-budget B-horror film, Night of Terror. Excellent. Would this be considered a Poverty Row picture? No, Columbia was a, a minor major. A minor major. Yeah, they were a major studio. They just didn't have a whole heck of a lot of money. Uh, and this would be like a B-movie on their uh, budgeting schedule. All right, well, stay tuned. Till then, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.